0: Hello, and welcome to Kissa, a story podcast, or welcome back to Kissa if you are joining us again for part two of the episode, Stories by Contributing Writers. I hope to make this a recurring series so I can bring you, and myself, more exciting writers we might not have otherwise known about. Please also remember to rate, review, subscribe, download, and listen to Kissa, a story podcast, Wherever you get your podcasts, it really helps the mysterious algorithm, which I know very little about otherwise. Today also, I bring you two stories from two very different writers. Our first story is by Prachi Jain. Prachi writes short stories and poems. She is a mother of two awesome eye rollers, a self-proclaimed skincare slash home remedies guru and an impeccable procrastinator, which is something I share with her, um, an impeccable procrastinator with some unusual habits, like blessing each airplane she sees from her bedroom window, which is just lovely. She's thankful for her ability to rethink every consensus and reevaluate every opposition. I wish I could do that. Her work has been published in the Huffington Post, Ascent Aspirations, Vending Machine Press, Six Sentences, and Brown Girl magazine. She likes to blog about the usage of literary devices and also poses some puzzling questions and attempts to answer them via her blog, thewritesail.com. That is the W-R-I-T-E-S-A-I-L dot So, T-H-E-W-R-I-T-E-S-A-I-L dot com. So, after you've uh, finished up with this podcast, go on over to her blog and read what she has to say. So, let's proceed now with Ahead in Life by Prachi Jain. When my husband first informed me that his company wanted him to move to a small country in the Middle East for three years and that he was actually considering it, I thought he had lost all sense. Why would I want to leave my life in the United States and move to a small country at the other end of the globe? I had a good life here, a stable job with excellent chances of moving up, a decent circle of friends, and most important of all, my upcoming plans of buying our own home in a nice neighborhood. My husband reasoned with me, saying that the international experience would boost his career and that we would get a three-week, expense-paid vacation to our home country every year. The rest of our expatriate package read just as enticingly. I agreed. We were young and had no kids then. Consider it an adventure, said my husband. I hear that life is pretty laid back there. Relax, and when you're tired of it, you can find some work too, he added. Within a week, I resigned from my job, paid all the bills, broke the lease of our apartment, said my goodbyes, in this exact order, and was exhausted by the speed at which I was winding up, almost uprooting our lives in this continent, hoping to build a temporary one in the other. I was trying to finagle so many things at a time that it did not occur to me To find out more about my temporary home for the next three years. Within three weeks of accepting the position, we were on a transatlantic flight to the Middle East. This was 1995, a time before Google, so the in-flight magazine was my medium of connecting the two continents. The one that I left behind, where I felt as comfortable as in my worn nightshirt, and the one that I was looking forward to with part trepidation, part excitement for the unknown. Upon arrival, I was impressed with the modern architecture of the airport. The circular building was constructed mostly with marble and granite. The inside was richly carpeted. The information booth was under the rotunda where a huge crystal chandelier accentuated the gleaming pillars and shining chrome airline counters. Even more striking than the building was the prominence of a black and white chessboard-like garb of the Arab men and women. The men wore white ankle-length collarless gowns with long sleeves called, called the distasha, as I learned later, and the women covered themselves with the black black rather, hijab. To add to my awe of the exotic, a strong sense of perfume, wafted through the enclosed building. The combination of this uniqueness must have affected me immensely because my husband remarked, did you think we would land in the middle of the sand dunes and ride on camelbacks to our tents? We were received by the company's administrative secretary, Omar, who came with a welcome basket of the finest Swiss chocolates and a large bouquet. Unaccustomed to his use of connotations of sir and madam, we looked at each other feeling awkward but important. Told you life would be different, my husband winked at me. As we walked out of the airport to ride in Omar's car, a heat wave hit us and the stifling humidity instantly fogged up our sunglasses. Omar mentioned that the humidity was something we would have to learn to tolerate for part of the year for the most part of the year, actually, the profusion of perspiration under my arms took the mystery out of the heavily scented bodies inside the airport. Beyond the impeccably maintained roads, the desert sand was everywhere, stretching out for miles in either direction. There were caution signs for camels like we had for deer back home. In less than a half hour, we reached our new home in a new country. Our three-storey, 7 bedrooms villa was fully furnished. The flooring was of black Italian marble and the staircase was adorned with filigree work. The furniture was mahogany and the drapes and bedding were fine silk. I had a strange feeling that the luxury of the place would make me settle down just too easily life in the new world started to take shape i had a household help come in every day for a few hours to clean the villa and then i was left alone a couple of weeks after settling in the misery of doing nothing all day started gnawing at me i wanted to start driving soon to get out and discover this part of the world by myself my husband's company filed my application for my driver's license. That being said, my husband had to sign a document declaring that he did not have any objection to his wife driving. This is demeaning. Why do I need your permission to drive? I yelled at my husband. I didn't make the laws, he said calmly. Besides, we're here for a short period of time. Don't let it bother you too much. Then narrowing his eyes meanly, he said, well, maybe it's not such a bad thing after all. I gently punched him. We joked about the implications of that law in our home country and shared a good laugh over it. Driving gave me some freedom, but a few days of mindless shopping sprees didn't lift my spirits. The Lamborghinis and the Ferraris though did leave me awestruck. I tried looking for a library, but they did not carry books in the English language. Watching television reminded me of the world that I had left behind. I began to look for an eager face to make friends with in the supermarkets or malls. One evening, I even dragged my husband to the town's sole discotheque, only to find a couple of hundred men in a circle watching a single Asian female dancing in the center. Slowly restlessness crept in i started looking for a job with my previous experience in the hotel industry i landed a job with the intercontinental hotel i became an assistant to the event manager at the hotel and of course i had to provide them with a no objection certificate from my husband By then, my husband had worked for three months in that part of the world and had seen how women were viewed as attractive female forms rather than individuals, just like men, with the same drive to earn and rise further in their careers. Things don't work here like back home, he explained to me. Men do not treat women as equals in this part of the world. Are you telling me that I can't take care of myself, I responded. I just ask you to take up a job where you will not have to deal with obscene remarks and indecent looks every now and then. Why don't you work as an English teacher in one of the schools for the expatriate children, he suggested. By then, I had entered my I have made up my mind kind of mood zone. I started switching the TV channels. After just a few weeks of working, I began to realize the veracity in my husband's words. When senior employees gave amorous looks and talked openly about how good I looked in a particular outfit or how my eyes shone when I smiled, I handled each situation with a blank look on my face as if they were talking Arabic to me. One such event left me very bitter when my boss asked me to hand him some papers. While I did that, he held my hand instead of the papers. His nephew picked up the papers while looking at me approvingly. They exchanged meaningful glances and then smirked. Had I made a big deal about that deliberate accident and not kept a nonchalant attitude, I probably would have invited verbal, detailed description of my vital statistics from them as well, before being fired for even alluding to such a brazen act. After all, he was the son of one of the owners of the hotel. Not to mention the loss of my job and a series of lectures from my husband's, all titled, I Told You So. Five months later, I was asked to replace the event manager as he was leaving for his home country. I knew that ignoring the Arab male's advances at their late night parties would be a daunting task. Nonetheless, I was excited about holding a managerial position. Maybe my new position would come with some power to appropriately dodge every lusty look or amorous remark shot my way. The other difficult task was how to tell my overprotective husband about my new position, the extra responsibilities, Mm -hmm. and the added hours to go with it. The previous month when I told him I was disturbed about my big boss asking me if I would like to have tea with him in his office, he reasoned with me, there's nothing to prove here. One lascivious look or lewd remark would devastate you. This is not a challenge, we're only here for a short time. You can advance your career when we get back to the States. So I thought of breaking the news to him over a romantic dinner. We went to a beach restaurant and sat on the private deck overlooking the Mediterranean. My husband was looking at the menu while I used mine to hide my own face, giving away my anxiety. My brain was busy charting out various ways to bring up the issue, and my expressions kept changing with the phrases that my mind approved and words that it rejected. I mumbled my choice of food to the waiter And decided against the device of appropriateness with my husband. I felt it would be insulting to our honest relationship and so I opened my mouth to tell him everything the straightforward way when I heard them distinctly. They were seated on the beach right under a table right under our table. Although I only knew a few words of Arabic after about eight months of stay in the Middle East I could not miss the emotions that the two projected. She was talking in spurts, her voice muffled with sobs, and he was responded with, responding with an occasional grunt or two. She sounded as if she was begging him not to do something, and he was giving her various reasons as to why he could not help but do it. Through the gap in the planks, I could see their silhouettes. At one point, she squeezed his arm and broke into loud wails. He got upset and yelled at her in Arabic. It was obvious that listening to her sniveling was infuriating him. We stopped eating and tried to listen carefully to every word that was exchanged down there. When her pleading voice and his angry tone reached their crescendo, I called our server and told him that the noise was bothering us. He said he did not have the authority to ask them to leave as they were hotel guests. When I asked him to listen for a couple of minutes and tell me what exactly was going on, he muttered, the usual. He wants to bring one more wife into the household and she's getting emotional about it. According to the rules, he's demanding her permission to marry again. She will come around. They all do. He will make sure of that. He added, if you want, I could move you to another table. My aspirations to soar high in that discriminating world seemed trivial compared to her predicament. We quietly finished our dinner away from their conversation. So, you wanted to tell me something, asked my husband. I smiled through my closed lips and shook my head. Now we come to story number three, which is a very different kind of story indeed. This is a story called Being Tree by Paula Reed. Again, full disclosure, as I had in the last time, I have known Paula Reed for over a decade. She is a brilliant and talented writer, and I knew her when I lived in Switzerland, and she lived across the border in France. Paula Reed. Is a writer and translator. Born and raised in California, she has lived in France for many years. Her short fiction has been published in a variety of literary journals. Her essays and nonfiction on environmental and justice issues have been published in The Independent and in Mother Jones, among other journals and newspapers. You can find some of her work at paulareadwrites.com. So that's Paula P-A-U-L-A, Reed, Read R E A D W R I T E S dot com So again, once you're done with this story, please go read her wonderful writing at Paula Reads com. And now let's venture into being a tree. The wood, wi- the wood wide web thrum-hummed the revelation that humans are becoming trees. This is not communal human-treeness, the loving us, living alongside us, in with us. This is humans giving up flesh and bone for treeish limbage filled with sticky good sap-sap. The lovely mycorrhizal head networks click signals and airborne spurts blip 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 snap blip about the human movement towards rootedness among flightless bipeds among the most dangerous of animal forms known to trees with their zzz, zzz sharpie sharps cutting us chop chop down First known human to tree transformation since the long, long bristlecone time, Cynthia Saunders of Traverse City, Michigan, learned of mythological tree nymphs and chose to become one. Having been called tart one too many times by her parents, she went out into the family cherry orchard. She dug her shortest rooty roots into the ground and dreamed herself into blossom. She rejoiced at hearing the cherry trees whisper, greeting her with sugars, because that is good tree manners. She pushed out sudden twigs, leaves, and flowers. She stayed with us until she fruited. Then she realized that at 17 years old, she was a rather old cherry tree. Knowing what her family did to old trees, she pulled in her branched below grounds up into her trunk and step steps forth to tell the human world. Soon there was a rush of human rootings. It's what humans do. They rush faster than ivy up a trunk. In forests, on riversides, humans pushed their toes into the earth, reached their arms upwards, and started telling their stories to us. Tree humans are chatty as bamboo in a stiff breeze, clack clack clackety, clackety clack. They are the clackiest trees. There came the humans who wanted to be the big trees. They co- came to the biggest forest and stood among us, sequoias, baobabs, banyans. Mostly they spend their tree time as all bark, no girth versions of our great elders. What is a human life measured in sequoia years? A sprouty infancy. Few hu- humans possess the stamina or desire to remain if they can't stand tall or wide among giants. But Tomas Juriski has a- affirmed from his oak roots in the Białowieża forest that he won't assume human form until he's larger than the largest oak in that forest. Mm Hmm, tree humans. We've learned, mull, 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 about things like size or height. We don't understand why. They don't understand why we don't understand. Dylan Mitchell became an entire aspen forest in Colorado all by himself. Sprout, sprout, sprouting, Dylan rhizomes and seeding Dylan clones. He wanted to be the first human forest visible by satellite. Now he's a small Dylan Copse and can't revert to human form. He chorus yells about this injustice and his leaves come out red. Most of us have him on mute. Sigh, sigh. So many human trees suck, drink, take more than they give on root lines they hoard their sugars they don't warn others of danger or 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 they send out alarms for a bee colony or single grazing four-footer they are truly the most obnoxious the most sorry anxious arboreals especially when freshly treed many humans who are considered old or even ancient by biped years have chosen to root themselves as they stiffen with age. They enjoy the calm treeness of life, yes, yes. And they wish to prolong their existence without fear of disease or injury. They love the flow of sap. Creaking doesn't hurt. We don't shish, whisper, sigh about root rot or bad storms. They are having a lovely time. They listen more than they clack. Tree blessings upon the humans who take root in those hard soiled places where so many humans live, where the earth has been smothered and the air is thick. They tell us that it is the least they can do to give their time to places with no roots to ground them. Entire forests have sprung up and they ask us for advice. Others have gone to places where many trees burned. They join limbs and try to build forests. These are such sweet trees. May their tap roots always find water. Tree blessings upon the humans who spend more, some few seasons as trees, some as humans, and come back to visit as trees. They tell us what being a tree has meant in their walking lives. How they have learned to love wind and rain. How they bend in the hard winds of human life. May the rain always fall when they are thirsty. Tree blessings upon the humans who have found a habitat in being habitat. Those who let life abide in all its forms in the nooks and crooks of their limbs. They are learning good treeness. May all their visitors and side-by-sides be kind. Message to new trees, wherever you may be, welcome, drink up, grow strong, listen more, clackety-clack less. We embrace you as you embrace us. Message to humans who ask whether trees would like to become bipedal, that Sisera, sisura, you hear when the breeze caresses our leaves, is the sound of us laughing. My apologies to some of the pronunciations I might have messed up to you, dear listener, and also to our wonderful writer, Paula Reed, um, who wrote this magically exceptional um, story for us. Thank you for listening to Kissa, a story podcast. And thank you, Shalini Narayanan, Jenny Buor, Prachi Jain, and Paula Reed for your contributions to this episode, to both parts of this episode. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed listening to these stories as much, as much as I enjoyed reading them to you. I'm now gearing up for Valentine's day here at Kissa, a story podcast. So stay tuned that's all I'm going to tell you. Tell your story-loving friends about this podcast and please do at the risk of repeating myself or really just repeating myself. Do listen, download, subscribe and review Kissa, a story podcast, wherever you prefer to get your podcasts. Until next time, story lovers, stay well.